I was 13 years old when I became acquainted with this face, and his name became synonymous with something's going wrong in the culture, and that is the name Jim Jones. Don't know if you know who Jim Jones is. He was the founder and leader of what was known as the 1970s cult called the People's Temple, which was best known as he led them in a murder-suicide where 909 of its members in Jonestown, Guyana, took their life by drinking Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. The pictures of their uh, death were on the covers of Time magazine, and it was so startling because this was a pre-internet era, mind you, and so I had never, ever even imagined something like this, let alone seen it. But as a 13-year-old, I remember thinking, how in the world did close to 1,000 people get duped into thinking something like this. Uh, the story of Jim Jones began earlier than you can imagine. He, he, he sort of started as a person that sounded like a Christian, but very quickly into the 60s, he began to express notions that traditional Christianity really wasn't getting it done. He began to interpret the scriptures through his own mind and his own heart and his own economic philosophy. He started referring to Christianity as a quote-unquote, fly-away religion, and rejected the Bible as a tool uh, of the wicked in the world. He denounced a sky god. A quote from him, he said back in the early 1970s, what you need to believe in is what you can see. And if you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. And if you see me as your father, I'll be your father for those of you who don't have a father, if you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. And if you see me as your God, I'll be your God. I, I was, I'm shocked that people don't, didn't go, yo, friend, that's problematic for me. I'm also stunned that his, you know, he was so entrenched in San Francisco culture, too. He was friends with the mayor. He was friends with Harvey Milk, who was a gay rights activist at the time. Uh, he was friends with the governor. He was politically active. Then the San Francisco Chronicle started highlighting in an expose some of the abuses that were taking place inside the cult. And very quickly in 1977, he and his whole group got on planes and moved to Guyana to a city he named after himself. And may I say right up front, any time the leader of the movement decides to name whatever it is after himself, you got to say that's a red flag right on the top of things. What happened after that was tragic. Uh, a, a congressman and a delegation went down to Guyana to investigate. When they realized that the jig was up, he led everybody in a ritual suicide that they practiced. If you really are curious about the, Johns, the Jonestown tragedy, CNN is rerunning a special from 2008, a two-hour special about this entire thing. Here's the thing. In our culture of postmodern thought and relativistic truth, where people would say any way is okay, how could you be judgmental and say this isn't true or that isn't true, we still can get universal condemnation of cults. When, when you see somebody lead others, mass groups of people in a suicide, even the most pluralistic of persons, even the, the person that is the most progressive in their outlook about religion and theology and the world says, that's just wrong. 
You can even get them to say that. That is just wrong. Now, I, I, I think this is certainly true in our, in our day when we start looking at things like radical Islam and the willingness of people to terrorize others and take lives indiscriminately in the name of their religious view. We can get a culture to generally speaking agree that's wrong. Something's wrong. Even if they don't say it, they'll internally know that's, that's wrong. So when we as Christians come across passages in Scripture, it's odd that for many of us, there is a, a nervousness, a nervous energy that comes upon us when the two words false teaching get bantered about. When Christians start talking about false teaching, there is something in us that fears that we're going to get lumped in with this group that is seen by our North American culture as intolerant and bigoted and somehow or another thinks we're better than everybody else. But there is no way to get around the New Testament in that almost every letter, every epistle written by an apostle, that's a tongue twister right there, has some mention of their declaration that somebody is coming along in the name of Christianity and teaching something that is false. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, if our culture is going to be honest with ourselves, we, we're constantly evaluating things as true and false beliefs. So as a church, it shouldn't be that difficult for us to say this would be something we would say is a false doctrine. In fact, even the postmodern notion, the, the pluralistic notion that we're never going to say this is exclusively true or that's exclusively true, the exclusion of certain truths is itself a declaration paradoxically, that that's a false doctrine. People will say, your view of Christianity excludes others. I don't think that's true, but I oppose anybody who would talk about false doctrines. I mean, don't you, don't you understand how ironic that all is? What we can see in our passage today is that the Apostle Paul isn't indiscriminately deciding he wants to be right and everybody else has to be wrong. This is not about per se, right and wrong. Although truth is a great thing. It glorifies God and all truth is God's truth. But at the heart of Paul's teaching to call out false teachers in his day is the same heart that would cause any of us to look upon a tragedy like a mass suicide in our day and go, that's just really not good for people. That's just wrong. That's just bad. That's just false. So we have to explore why Paul is so hot about calling these folks false teachers. It's not that false teaching as a culture or as a church, calling out false teachers is a bad thing. We just have to get to why so it doesn't appear like we just like to be right and they're just wrong. You think Paul was hot about this. Today we didn't read verses 13, 14, and 15 during our worship time because 15 verses is a lot of verses to read during worship time. So I saved these three precious gems from Paul for the outset of our message today. So read with me three verses that come at the tail end of what was already read this morning. Paul says this about these teachers in Corinth. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end 
will correspond to their deeds. Do you, do you hear the rhetoric here? He's referring to these people as agents of Satan. This is tough talk. And so it may make some of us uncomfortable, but what I want you to be able to do is put on the lens of his culture and see that he had seen over and over and over again, each apostle over and over and over again, the early church, including the creeds that the church universal has always held to be that which unifies Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestants together, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, which we'll be studying in the scaffolding series. These things themselves were declaration that, okay, we're going to have a creed because People are teaching some funky stuff that get at the root of and begin to erode our confidence in God's love for us, God's grace extended to us, and what Christ has already done for us. And you can hear in Paul's voice a passion. He calls it his divine jealousy. It's his way of communicating that God was passionate to protect us. And he was opposing teaching that could harm us. And this is the essence of love. Protecting and caring for others when they're attacked by evil. It's the essence of what Jesus did. Destroyed as we were by the fall of mankind, by our own devices, Jesus came to rescue us. He opposed evil. And, and as well, we see in Second Corinthians here, this is Paul's job. This is what he wants to do. So let's take a peek in and discover the what's and how's of Paul's thinking. First thing I have for you today is this. The genuine gospel relies on Christ's sacrifice alone. What we're going to see in this first passage that we're going to look at here is what's going to differentiate something between a true gospel, a genuine gospel, a pure gospel, as Paul calls it, and not is whether or not there is anything added to what Jesus has already done for us. Anytime something, it's Jesus plus whatever's in that parenthetical that goes after the plus, that's what's going to make something funky and impure. Let me explain what we're going to say here. Let me read the scriptures for you so you can hear. Verse 1, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Two really powerful images come out in this passage. Two images that are rooted in a lot of other scriptures. One is the fall of mankind. He's speaking of Eve's being deceived by the serpent. And it was really when Eve began and Adam began to question what God had said. So you can infer from this that one of the great dangers of false teaching is that they're going to direct you away from scripture. Jim Jones did real early on in his cult. We can't count on Scripture, so what we're going to do is start building something external to Scripture every now and again, citing as it's convenient to a Scripture. But really, we're going to steer away from this being the the building block, the foundation of our work. You also see this imagery of the bride, which is, of course, the, the biblical, specifically the New Testament image of the return of Christ. And so these two events, the fall of man and the return of Christ, frame for Paul that there is something important going on 
that he has to point out something critical that people have to understand that this false teaching that's coming to them is doing something that is going to cause them to be deceived as they were in the garden and cause them potentially to miss the return of Christ. Paul's concern is that our minds as Christ's church are being led away from a pure devotion to Christ. He doesn't want anyone who understood the gospel in its pure state to be deceived into impure devotion to God. Now, it begs the question, what is impure devotion to God? And according to our text and according to other passages and scriptures, which I'll cite in a minute, any belief or doctrine that robs Jesus of 100% of the glory for saving us 100%. Let me say that again, because if I do say so myself, that's creatively phrased. All right. When you want to find out what's an impure doctrine, it's when something takes 100% of the glory from Jesus that saves you 100%. Jesus gets all the glory, and our salvation in Christ is as secure as it could be. You can bank on it. It is a done deal. When his glory is threatened or our security is threatened, you're into funky town. Well, I would say, too, Paul's opponents, according to some commentators, they prized highly evidences of speaking authority and giftedness and power so that they had sort of suckered the, the Corinthians into believing in a Jesus that was very different than the one that Paul had described because as brilliant as Paul may have been, he describes himself, according to last week's text that we read, uh, according to this week's text and the text that we'll read in the future, he did not think himself this great eloquent speaker. The Corinthian cult leaders, if you will, were saying, listen, we're powerful communicators. We're great speakers. Look how incredibly gifted we are. You should listen to us. And what that did was it, it pulled people in. So there's your second little warning sign. In addition to somebody directing you away from Scripture, ironically, ironically, when you have a gifted communicator, you should probably be careful and hold them even more accountable to holding truth and the Scriptures as most important. You see... People had infiltrated churches. And in particular, there was another group of people in what was called Galatia. This group of churches also had super religious people who'd infiltrated the church to say that faith in what Jesus had accomplished wasn't enough. There was something else that needed to be done. Enjoying him by virtue of his gifts of mercy and grace wasn't sufficient to be secure about salvation. We needed to add in their case, circumcision to the list of things we needed to do to close the deal. You know, it's one thing to talk about salvation, but to close the deal, this is what you need to do. And this is often what happens in cults. The gospel, let me be as clear as I can be, so clear today do I want to be that I'm actually going to read what I've written word for word so as to not be misunderstood. Because if, if you've come to visit our church or you've been coming recently, um, I, I would want you to understand how important this is to us because it forms the foundation of the community we're building here, which is a community centered around God's kindness and God's grace in Christ and certainly not in any of the superpower leaders in our church, three more of whom we're going to install next week. We'll get to that in a little bit. 
I'm saying this is supposed to be about Christ and his grace. And he is really the leader of our church. So here we go. The gospel, the good news, is that relationship, restoration with God is done by virtue of calling out in faith alone to God. And in response, you'll receive both the mercy and grace of God. Mercy, by virtue of Jesus' suffering on the cross, God's wrath in our place, and grace by Jesus achieving perfection in his obedience and then crediting it to those he has saved. Only in Christ can we be secure that anything I've done wrong that needed to be punished has already been taken care of. And any holiness that I would need to exhibit, which is like complete holiness in order to just enjoy the presence of God, has been credited to me and given to me as a gift by Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the law in ways that we could not even attempt, let alone try to accomplish. Listen to what Paul said to the Galatian churches, very similar to what he was saying to the Corinthians. Quote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So why is this important? Why does it need to be Christ alone? Because, friends, if you and I in any way, in any percentage take away from what Christ has done, we immediately move into insecurity. Let me place it on myself here. If I in any way start adding up how good I did this week, get my set of rules that I think I can obey down, or some type of Christian ethic that I am supposed to follow, and I start measuring how well I've done on that scale, it will not produce security. In fact, an honest assessment of my well-doing this week will produce nothing but insecurity. And the lack of security in my relationship with God has this reverse effect of making me either super self-righteous about the things I do do well or super despondent about the way that I am failing. Whereas Christ has pulled us into a relationship with him by saying, I'm going to make you okay. I'm going to forgive you all of your sins, past, present, and future. I'm going to give you my righteousness so that you can stand in my presence and in the presence of the Father today at rest because of what I've done. Now, because I've been so gracious to you, go and do likewise to others. This is the gospel. Not try real hard and then maybe one day if you get it all together, you might then be able to have peace with God. Peace with God was offered in Christ. He did what we couldn't do. He paid a debt he didn't know. He took care of that for us. So anyone who comes along and says, okay, you have to trust in Christ, but I got something else for you too. This is so common. Well-meaning but naive Christians consent to some doctrine that actually undercuts the free grace of God. Some cults say you must be baptized again. 
in their church or in their water or in their mode. Some say you can never traverse through seasons of doubt because if you stop believing in faith, you automatically then jeopardize your salvation. More insidious than this is the notion that we can draw up a set of cultural norms that sort of look like biblical principles and then judge each other based on those. And then if you fail in any way, shape, or form, let alone in the scriptures themselves, at that moment, you can exactly lose your salvation. You can move from being a child of God to someone who is not a child of God completely by virtue of what you did or didn't do. And once again, I'll tell you that if that little thing, in addition to all of that Christ has done, if that little thing is what is extra required of you, then ultimately it's the little thing that saves you, and that's the thing that people are going to focus on. That's the thing that's going to become the crowning achievement of the mini-cult. Whatever that is, circumcision, baptism, a particular repudiation of a particular sin, not celebrating holidays or something, you can't just believe in Christ. You have to worship on the right day of the week. That ultimately then, if you're going to believe them, is the key to salvation, your obedience. It simultaneously takes away from the glory of Christ and it eats away at your confidence so that you are now finding yourself insecure and afraid of God. And Paul is saying, that's not the God of our salvation. The God of our salvation has completely forgiven us of our sins and has completely secured us in Christ. What could we possibly do to be more valuable to God than what Christ has already provided on our behalf? One of the highlights of my past month was Carolyn's and my 25th anniversary cruise to Alaska, which was considerably cooler than it is in this chapel today. <laughs> my favorite time was the whole time on the cruise. Uh, I tweeted this past week, Carolyn asked me on Monday, what do you want to do for dinner? I said, I want to go back on the cruise ship. <laughs> One of the cool things about dinner at, on the cruise ship is once you get in a rhythm of it, you can have as much as you want. The first night, you know, the, the maitre d' and his tux comes, and you kind of sort of feel bad. You're like, can I have the escargot? Yeah, thank you. And just one steak's fine. By the end of the week, I'm like, just bring the kitchen, dude. Just bring it all. I'll take your escargots and your shrimps and anything you got in there. Four or five creme brulees, please. And... If I leave a couple on the table, so be it. Now, the, this is a, something you got to really adjust to on a cruise, too. Is I'm accustomed to going, mind you, into restaurants that are far less pricey. I'm a guy on a subway budget. But when I do go someplace, it's usually Buffalo Wild Wings. And, and in Buffalo Wild Wings, you sit down, you order your meal, they bring you a check, and then there's an expectation that the final thing you do before you leave is pay your check and the tip, Right? So on a cruise ship, you're like, okay, had the meal, and then you realize, we can just skip out of here. Check has been paid. Thank you very much. Now, granted, it's not free. We paid a fortune to go on this cruise. We've been saving up for 25 years. <laughs> but the point is, when we got done with dinner, we didn't add to what was already done. We just celebrated that we're there. There's, no, there's nothing else we're supposed to do. This has been paid for. And hence, I had another creme brulee. So I'd say, I'll take one to go. Thank you very much. 
in many ways, friends, the gospel is a celebration. The, the payment's been made. Now, we're going somewhere. We have a destination. And we're not there yet to, to return the return of Christ and the restoration of all things for his glory to the way they were before the fall of mankind. But the, but the price of the trip has already been paid. You can't add anything to it. What could you do? That Christ hasn't already done. What, what paltry sum could I contribute that would make God go, yeah, the blood of Christ and his righteousness. And what are you, you going to bring here, Chuck? Oh, gosh, that's really embarrassing. Why would I think for a second that my walking little old ladies across the street, which is really important to do, mind you, but why would I think that that would make God go, hey, in addition to the blood of Christ, that really works for me. Thank you. <laughs> what a great contribution you've made to the experience here. He's taken care of everything, and he's waiting for you and I to just simply celebrate and worship him. And because on our cruise, I was so overwhelmed because this is completely not our lifestyle, we found ourselves thanking people who are, like, getting paid to take care of us. And I'm like, thank you so much, you know. We're, like, making friends and hugging people in the hallway who are making our beds. Oh, thank you so much. Because we're just, we just couldn't believe that all this was free. Well, it wasn't really free. It was paid for. The genuine gospel, friends, that which is important enough for Paul to call the opponents of it messengers of Satan, is one that gives Christ 100% of the glory and secures your salvation 100%. It relies on Christ alone. And then secondly, today... I will tell you that the genuine gospel leader reflects Christ's service. Read from our passage today, verses 5 through 9. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, he's sarcastically calling them super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we've been made this plain to you in all, we've made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, I was in need. I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, this may sound oddly self-serving, but let's be very clear up front about what Paul is, is and isn't saying about compensating the church's pastor. All right? <laughs> no, I'm, I, seriously, it's important for you to realize this. It wasn't that Paul wouldn't have allowed the Corinthians to willingly support him. There's some commentators who think that they offered support and he rejected it. There's more evidence to suggest that he was serving the Corinthians and that they weren't willing to support him. Hence, in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, he had to sort of reprove them for their unfaithfulness in helping out poorer churches around the, around the region. So there is some sense that Paul was saying, you know, I wanted to not be a burden to you all, and you all, I had a need, you didn't come to my aid, but I continued to serve you. Paul is contrasting the generosity of, of other churches with him. And as is the case with some churches, uh, they were sufficiently wealthy enough to support the leaders, but they didn't. And their non-generous hearts were being reminded by Paul that he graciously took care of his own needs and others took care of his needs for them. In, in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, 
there is Paul's declaration to Timothy that the elders who rule, I quote, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you do not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain and the labor deserves his wages. So there's obviously from scripture evidence that Paul is saying we should compensate people when churches can. In this particular case, it is really obvious that Paul took a salary. It's just not from the Corinthians. Look what it says here in verse 9. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. So it's not like he was saying, I think all pastors should not get paid. He was saying, we should get paid, but you clearly weren't going to do the job. The people in Macedonia took care of it. The brothers in Macedonia have provided for my needs. Interestingly enough, and it's a very quick side note, this is the scenario of exterior support that is really following the trajectory of our church plant and other church plants. And that is, for the first five years of Prism Church, um, a team of believers from outside of our church, most of them 2,000 miles away in Florida, have been supporting our pastor, that would be me, and my family. Now, 100% of our support in years one and two came from them. And then over the past three years, this congregation has been picking up additional portions of what the church pays their pastor. That would be me. And I like to speak of me in the third person, not because I think I'm Donald Trump, but because we are part of building a church together. And what we're trying to do is make sure that our church lasts beyond my lifetime. So we speak of the role of the pastor and paying the pastor and all those things in those terms. This is not about me or my platform or my ministry. You don't see my face or my name on our sign out front. This is all about building a church where we are going to support those who labor to gather us and and lead us and care for us. Well, over the past five years, we have started transitioning and four months from now, we'll be completely without support from outside of our church. We have begun and and are getting ready to conclude, and your support and encouragement and giving is going to make that all the same, is is that we want to be a church that not only provides for its pastors, but like the churches that we're helping Paul, we want to help pastors and missionaries from around the world. We are mandated by our association to give 10% to church planting, which we have been doing for the past five years, even as we've not been able to pay our staff full-time. We've been sending 10% of our offerings to church plants in Boston and here in Los Angeles. And next year, we're hoping to send to a guy who just graduated from Fuller, who's hopefully planting an X-29 church in Kenya. We're hoping to get associated with a, a church that's getting planted in inner city Detroit. And Lord knows, inner city Detroit needs more gospel-centered churches at this stage of its life. Paul is saying this. The character he was trying to display to his hearers is what gave him credibility while the false teachers were deceiving them and turning them against him. Paul isn't saying it would be wrong for me to ever take support or 100% of my support from you all. What he's saying is, in this particular scenario, these super apostles have built the congregation. I've come to you and said, I am not going to take your support. I'm going to let others support me so that You won't question my motive for doing this. No, I'm not the speaker they are. But frankly, what you need to do is look at character to discover that. The genuine gospel leader will will characterize Christ, will glorify Christ in this particular facet of Christ's character, which is Christ's servant-heartedness. He said to them, 
I robbed other churches by accepting support for them in order to serve you. For this context, Paul is saying that the gospel leader's heart should be characterized by a willingness to sacrifice for others. And it reflects what Jesus said. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus says, he calls them together and says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Paul gets ready to lead into this really fun section of 2 Corinthians that's coming up in the next two weeks of our time here at church, where he's going to use a lot of sarcasm, which is like my second language. It's really fun for me to study this kind of stuff. And uh, he uses these really crafty turns of phrase as well. Well, he first wants the Corinthians to see that his gospel says that you can approach God as imperfect. Because I'm not perfectly skilled. And so I come to you and I bring a gospel that doesn't really have anything to do with how well I presented it to you. It's the essence of the gospel of grace that makes my message credible. And that credibility is fostered by the fact that I didn't ask anything of you to bring it to you. I'm I'm going to, even if they offered it, he's saying, listen, I'm not going to allow you folks to distract from the gospel by having your super apostle guys tell me that I'm doing this for the wrong reason. Paul's teaching is consistent with what we're saying in the gospel, that it's about the heart, that it's not about outward appearances, that we couldn't do it if we tried. Paul is saying this is all about what Jesus has done for us. I am super reluctant as both a pastor and as just a Christian because I know my own heart to ever call out specific people. From time to time, the televangelists who are preparing their prosperity gospel messages will cause me to say prosperity gospel people are teaching something that is not true. But I am reluctant to mention anyone by name most of the time because I got my own problems and my own struggles and I don't want to appear self-righteous. I'm just really trying to say I would like you to not walk down a road that could ultimately damage your soul. We feel a certain responsibility to do that. Whether, and again, here we go, I'm going to name a couple of these famous people, whether it's Joel Osteen or Kenneth Copeland or T.D. Jakes. There's a whole host of these super apostles who are really getting filthy, stinking rich off of churches in the name of God. It's a problem. But as, as troubling as that is, I'll tell you that there is an aspect of one of them, and I won't even say who it is this time, but one of those super guys did a teaching on what it means to be a leader, a leader like Moses. And the essence of this teaching was that a leader will develop through three phases. At first, you'll be amongst the people, and then you'll be out in front of the people, and then eventually you will rise above the people. I know. I see some of you, your eyebrows just went, holy mackerel. That should set off the Jim Jones red flags right away. All right, because 
understand something. I think there are biblical principles that we can apply to daily life, but our goal here is to like look at Jesus and go, okay, how did Jesus live? Uh, Moses had his context and had to do certain things certain ways, but ultimately, how did Jesus walk? I mean, that's why we wore the WWJD bracelets back in the 90s, right? It was to say, what does Jesus do? And what does Jesus do? He walks among the worst of us. He goes to death for us. The only time Jesus, when he was on this earth, rose above us is when they nailed him to a cross. You see, even when Jesus was teaching the masses, he was down in a boat and they were up on the hill. Jesus' whole posture was, I'm here to serve. I'm not here to be the super apostle who you serve. He's saying, I'm here to give my life as a ransom for many. The practical application for all of us today is this. We have to look in our hearts and ask, when we cannot be servants of others, when others aren't more important to us than our own selfish needs and concerns, when we get angry with others for getting in front of us on the highway or getting in front of us at a line in Starbucks or something that makes you think, what about me? When that impulse to make us number one starts to kick in, we have to ask how deeply has the gospel affected our lives? You see, we are called as Christians to encounter Jesus day in and day out. He has saved us to the uttermost. He has 100% secured us as his. But in that joy of being on his ship, we're called to encounter him relationally and recognize that he's more gracious than we could have ever believed. And in response to his kindness to us, we're supposed to begin to act like him where we actually increasingly demonstrate his servant-heartedness to others. You see, you shouldn't just go out today and go, I'm just going to serve people better. My, my encouragement to you today, if you've got that something in you right now, it, it, it's the Holy Spirit perhaps pulling you to say, I, there's something I need to change. I would say the first step is to change and say, I'm going to encounter Jesus daily because as I encounter his grace and kindness and his selflessness towards me, the scriptures say, then by his grace and power, I will begin to demonstrate that servant-heartedness to others. Paul's problem with the false teaching is that the character of the people was belying that they weren't really experiencing a servant-hearted Jesus because they weren't in turn saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you. They were saying, I'm here to be lifted up. See, if you're encountering Jesus, you're continuously being pulled into greater measure of humility. The great Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen, the late great Henry Nouwen said, he termed this phrase, downward mobility. That's where you're headed as a Christian. Everybody else is servant. And the person who's really encountering Jesus is the person who demonstrates that in increasing measure. The genuine gospel leader reflects Christ's service and the genuine gospel relies on Christ's sacrifice alone. Let us pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your great grace towards us. We are undeserving and would pray that today you would be moving in our hearts and my brothers and sisters and I's hearts to um, 
to, to encounter you more so that we would see how amazingly gracious and servant-hearted you are. And that would cause us to want to experience the joy of giving of our lives more than we take because you demonstrated that supremely. Jesus, be glorified in us. And thank you for how we see your kindness in so many ways. For it is in your name we pray.